Hear now the very words of God as they are given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the first chapter, verses 67 through 69. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's pray and ask for illumination. Heavenly Father, as we turn now to this word and as we as we put it into perhaps a context that Luke did not mean it as he wrote it, but an application, if you will, because it's Palm Sunday, because of the triumphal entry, that you will give wings to my words, that they will strike home, that they will be true and faithful to this scripture, that we wouldn't pull any punches, we wouldn't try to add anything or, or, or take it away, but that we would be able to apply it and to to understand the totality, the completeness of your redemption, of your visitation, and of your power and salvation. We'll give you the glory in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, on the Sunday before Easter, before the Resurrection Sunday, not everyone agrees on that day exactly, but Jesus entered Jerusalem in a most spectacular way that was deep with meaning. Uh, Let me read this particular segment or the event from from the book of Mark and the way that Mark gives it, because um, I I want you to have the details of this event clearly in your mind. So I'm going to read from Mark 11, just the first 10 verses. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And when they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus has said, and they let them go. Now, something should be going through your mind as you read this, not just visualizing it, but you should be asking yourselves, okay, why so much discussion of a donkey, right? Why is this being pulled out for us? Obviously, this is something essential to the text. It's essential to this event. So you want to make sure you notice that there was a discussion of how this donkey got involved in it. Let's go on to the seventh verse. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, over the centuries, this day or this event has come to be known as the triumphal entry. And the reason for that is because there was such a celebration. And John tells us that Jerusalem was emptying out, coming this way, and people were following, coming this way partially because he had raised Lazarus from the dead a month or so before, and it was true. people all wanted to see who he was. But it's not 100% clear unless we get the perspective right, unless we see this in its proper view, we're not going to understand why this would be a triumphal entry. Because the same people who are now, or some of the same people, not all of them, but some of the same people who are crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, before the week is out, are going to be crying, crucify him, crucify him. And they're going to kill him in a torturous manner. So where is the triumph in that? Well, that's the reason we have to look at it spiritually. We have to look at it symbolically. In fact, even a little metaphorically. Because the triumph is in the death, and, and we know that. The triumph is in the cross work where sin is going to be destroyed. A battle is going to occur, 
as Jesus enters into that city. Now, we're go- that means we're going to look at this event symbolically, spiritually. And, and the symbolism of the triumphal entry is complicated. It's on several different levels. So let me just kind of bring out a couple of those right now at, at the first, and then we'll get into the text, and I'll show you what this has to do with what Zechariah said. Um, first of all, there's the picture of the king coming into his kingdom. There's an image of Jesus coming in as the king, entering into his kingdom. That's what Zechariah said in that passage that we read earlier, that the king is coming to you humble and seated on a, on a donkey, a beast of burden. But he still is coming into his kingdom. Now, it's not the kind of kingdom that those who are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. It's not the kind of kingdom they are expecting. In fact, Jesus told Pilate, do you remember what he said? When Pilate said, you know, are, are, are you the king of the Jews? Well, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. He says, my kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's the kingdom of heaven. And so therefore, it's still triumphant. It's a triumphal entry because he is coming into a different kind of a kingdom. Now, we're going to come back to that thought later on because that's really kind of the central focus of of this morning's message. But there's another image, and this is one that's quite familiar to many of you, but not to everyone because not all of you have been here um, during the, the previous Palm Sundays. But the, the other image is of a man on a donkey entering into the city of Jerusalem, a man who was humble and, and is followed by a ragtag group of disciples. Now, if the people who were thinking that he was the Messiah would have just thought about it, he's not coming into the kingdom or into the city of Jerusalem like a conquering king. Because if he were, he wouldn't be on a donkey. He would be on a war horse. The Romans, when they used to do this, the, the, either, either the head general or the king would always be in front on a big white stallion, a big war horse. And into the city he would ride, flanked by all of his generals. And then behind them, the armies arrayed in battle gear to show that they were the, they were the conquering force. Well, that's not the way Jesus goes into this city to claim his kingdom. He goes in riding on a donkey. Now, during the time of war, the only time that a king would have entered a city riding on a donkey was if he was on a mission of peace. It had the same effect as if we were walking in with a white flag or an olive branch. He wants a parlay. He wants a diplomatic solution. He wants to bring peace. And and actually, that's what Zechariah said. If you look at it, we're reading it again. We just read it. But this time I'm going to read it from Matthew's version as he quotes it. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, meaning the prophet Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Well, that doesn't sound like a conquering king. That, that's a humble man riding in on a donkey who is indeed the prince of peace. That's what Isaiah says. For us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So when Jesus enters into Jerusalem as his triumphal entry, he's coming as the Prince of Peace also. That's the whole reason he's on a donkey. And people would have figured that out if they'd only thought about it. But let me go ahead and, 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 and just kind of spill the beans of what we're going to talk about this morning. Let me go ahead and put it into its context right in the very beginning. When someone comes into a city the way Jesus is to sue for peace, it's not an unconditional surrender. Every peace treaty has terms. And so when Jesus enters this kingdom, when he enters Jerusalem symbolically now, there are terms to his peace treaty. Now, it's not peace between his people and the people in the city. It is peace, shalom, between a sinful humanity and a righteous and perfect and holy God. That's the peace that he comes to bring. 
Now, there are terms to this peace treaty. I will give my life on the cross. I will die. And I will take the sins of the people who trust in me. But that's the primary part of this treaty. It is believing. It is trusting. It is accepting me as Lord and Savior. And following me your entire life. Putting your trust in my hands. That's the treaty. And if you accept the treaty. Listen, please. If you accept the treaty, there will be peace. If you reject the treaty... There will be war. So what will it be? That's the question that's in front of every single one of us today. What will it be? War or peace? Now, let's go back to the text. Let's go back to Zechariah. Let's go back to Luke 1. Just remember that story as a background. Because where we are in this text, in Luke 1, is just after the um, circumcision of John the Baptist, eight days after he was born. And, and we looked at it last week, and we saw that everything that the angel originally said to Zechariah in the temple has come true. His wife, although she is barren and way too old, has delivered a child. That child is a son, and Zechariah was mute for the nine months of the pregnancy. And, and that led us into that drama about the name, remember, where the, the people, there was a big crowd there because he's a famous baby, or a famous pregnancy anyway. And, and so they, they said, let's name him Zechariah after his father. And that's when Elizabeth just brought the festivities to a grinding halt when she said, absolutely not. We're going to call him John. And then they tried to go over her head to Zechariah, thinking that she was trying to sort of slide her own agenda in there on him. And Zechariah then asked for a tablet, and he writes his name is John. That name means God is gracious. And of course, we know that as soon as he did that, his tongue was loosened. His mouth was open. He got his voice back again. And what did he do? Immediately, Did he get angry? Did he say, boy, I've paid my dues? Was he indignant? No, he blessed God. And, and, and that's what we're going to look at this morning, part of that blessing. Now, he might have just blessed him right off the bat. But nonetheless, he's praising God because he knows that God is bringing together. It's not just because God has given him a son. It's because he's bringing redemptive history to its fulfillment. That's what that name that God is gracious, John means. He's not saying God is gracious to Zechariah and Elizabeth, although he was. He's saying God is gracious in this boy, this child, this John. Not because he's going to be gracious. Like I told you last week, he's probably the most politically incorrect person to ever take the pulpit. But because of his place in redemptive history. Grace is coming. Now, that grace is entering into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey bringing peace at the time of the, of the triumphal entry. And we're going to see how these two things bring together. So with that said, let's jump into these three verses. Starting out in verse 67, which kind of just starts the, sets the scene. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, I want you to notice right off the bat, How Luke is already hammering some of his primary themes right here in the first chapter. Kingdom of heaven, okay? I mean, we're seeing a lot about the kingdom and also the Holy Spirit. This is the fourth time in the first chapter that Luke has mentioned the Holy Spirit. Remember the angel Gabriel in the temple told Zechariah that your son will be filled with the Holy Spirit? And then when Mary asked, how on earth am I going to get pregnant if I'm a virgin? And, she, and he, the same angel said, you'll be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And then when Mary went to visit Elizabeth and walked in, there was this feeling, this great uh, uh, greeting and, and get together. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. What a blessed family. Zechariah, Elizabeth, and an even six-month-old fetus John the Baptist jumps in the womb, stimulated by the Holy Spirit. I've got some other things I want to talk about right here, but I'm going to kind of put them off to the after church. Um, And and it it has more to do with how God operates, how good he is, how um, forgiving he is, and how he uses those he disciplines. 
and how obedience is so important in this, but we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Um, Notice that the last thing it says in this verse is that he prophesied. Now, that is a word that simply means to foretell or to tell forth. Uh, Too often we think that prophecy is always prediction. That's not actually what the word means. The word means to speak or to tell forth the words of God. It means to say, thus saith the Lord, and actually say the words of the Lord. So what we're going to see is Zechariah actually take on the the position of the guise of a prophet as he says these words that are going to follow. He's going to actually be um, um, prophesying the words. Now, you know, just as Mary's song was sometimes called, or at least I called it, the song of worship, well, we're going to see Zechariah kind of give us a song of prophecy, a song of forthtelling. This is what God has to say. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be predictions. Later on in the song, we're going to see him do some predictions, especially about his son. But mainly, he is telling us something about God, God's words. And I am going to apply those words this morning to the triumphal entry. And you'll see if, uh, if you see that they fit just as I would see that they fit. But just look at Zechariah for a moment. Just imagine him. Here he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And God is using organically this man. His personality, his words, his thought, the discipline he's just been through, the life that he has lived. All of this is going to go together in the prophecy, the telling forth that Zechariah is going to do. And in that, brothers and sisters, you have an image of Old Testament revelation. This is how God speaks. This is how God revealed himself. That's what the the writer of Hebrews says. In days past, he spoke through the prophets, and that's exactly what we're seeing happening here with Zechariah. So he burst out in this psalm, and you can rest assured that these are the words of God that he says. So let's go look at that 68th verse. We're only going to look at the first two verses of this song. Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Look at that first word, blessed. This is not an unusual way for psalms or hymns to start out in an Old Testament context. In fact, we're far too many to actually talk about. But blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. That's Psalm 41, Psalm 72. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. This is a normal way for a hymn to be introduced. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea about Zechariah either. When he says, blessed be the Lord, he's not like the priest who's saying, you know, bless you, son, imparting the blessing. Because Zechariah, like any of us, has absolutely nothing to bring to the Lord to bless him with. But at the same time, this is not some arbitrary word that he just threw in there to start the song. It's a reciprocal word in the way that it is being used, in the way that it is used in many places in the Old Testament. In other words, what he is saying, blessed be the Lord because the Lord has blessed us. Blessed be the Lord because he has blessed my household. He has given me a son. But you're going to see in most of this song, even though he mentions his son, that's not the focus of the blessing. The focus of the blessing is what God is doing in redemptive history. Bring in the Messiah. This is about the Messiah. This is about the one who is even now in our other venue riding a donkey into Jerusalem. Blessed be the Lord because he has done these amazing and these wonderful things for us. Now, when he goes on and he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, that's covenantal language. When you run across those kinds of words, that's very covenantal in its basis. In other words, praise God because he is fulfilling his covenants. Now, when he talks about visitation and redemption later on, you're going to notice that he actually talks about it sort of in the past tense, like it's already happened when Jesus hasn't even been born yet. But so sure is he of God's redemptive plan of fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham and then is expanded in Moses and David and now bringing to the culmination with Jesus. He knows that God is bringing that about. 
Now, there's very little doubt when Zechariah says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, that he's speaking in an Old Testament context. He's an Old Testament Jew. And so, therefore, when he says Israel, what he's referring to is ethnic Israel, the, the nation of Israel. But we, we talked about this earlier when we saw um, Mary's prayer, the, the Magnificat, okay? Oh, by the way, I, I kind of jumped over. That's th- this particular prayer or song is called the Benedictus. And that's the, because that first word, blessed, is there, just like the first word in Mary's song was magnify, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's where Magnificat came from. Well, this is called the Benedictus because of the word blessing that starts it out. But nonetheless, um, we, we talked about in Mary's psalm when she said he has helped his servant Israel, that even though she was interpreting the covenantal faithfulness of God in the Old Testament context as the fulfillment of God's promises to his people, Israel, that as soon as we get to the New Testament, that just expands exponentially. And Paul starts talking about the Israel of God. And we see the, the development and the, and the sharing of the gospel into the nations, into the lands of the Gentiles. We see that Israel takes on a completely different aspect. It's spiritual Israel. It's the Israel of God. And anyone who puts their trust in the king of that kingdom is considered going forward into the New Testament and the history of the church considered to be the Israel of God. Even Jesus, Jesus gave us a hint of the directions that things were going. You you remember when he sent his disciples out, he said, go no place to go nowhere among the Gentiles, but only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's where our focus is going to be. But even though he said that, he still ministered to Gentiles. Do you remember the centurion who came to him and, and his servant was ill and Jesus healed him because the man said, you don't even need to come, just say the word and my servant will be healed. And he said, Jesus said, I've never seen such faith among the Jews and people are going to come from east and west and sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus told us that there was going to be a change going forward. Remember what he said to the Syrophoenician woman when she begged him to heal her daughter or to cast out a demon. He says, I can't take the the bread given to the children and throw it to the dogs. What a harsh statement. And then she said in utter subjugation, yeah, but even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. And so Jesus healed her. Jesus was heading that direction. He was kind of laying the groundwork. So when we see, even in these Old Testament discussions, when we see the people of Israel, we're going to naturally include ourselves in that. And, and, and I hope I have given you reason for doing that. Well, then he, he goes on and, and, and he expresses the reason for this blessing. He said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, both of those are eschatologically pregnant words. They have such deep meaning. Let's look at that first one, that he's visiting his people. Now, that's the verb form of a Greek word that you probably are somewhat familiar with, even though you don't know it. The Greek word is episkopos, and that's a word that means bishop or is often translated bishop. We have an Episcopalian church denomination in the, in the United States, and they're so-called because they have a bishop-oriented form of church government. I, I, I think that presbytos, elders, and bishops in the New Testament are pretty much the same thing. But the word means one who oversees. As Dr. Sproul says, he's kind of a super looker. You know, He's taking a look. He's overseeing. He has come to check out. His people and to, like a shepherd would look over his sheep to to watch out for them. And so when Zechariah uses this word, he has come to visit his people. It's a positive word. He has come to oversee them. He's come to see their needs, to respond to their cries, to, to release them from their oppression. They just don't know that the oppression he's going to release them from is sin and not Rome. But there's a flip side to the word. 
It's one of those words where it's a double-edged sword. And this goes back to what I started out the morning with. Because a visitation can either be a good thing or it can be a bad thing, depending on the one visiting and those being visited. Dr. Sproul, in his commentary, uh, uses the example, I think it's a good one, of a general. Imagine a general who comes to inspect his troops. And if he gets there and the troops are, man, they're a mean, lean fighting machine, they're in shape, they're well-disciplined, they're ready to go, well, he's pleased. And there's reward for this group of people, probably an extra day of, you know, in town or something like that. But if the same general comes and he finds his army in disarray, if he finds them undisciplined, if he finds them slovenly and out of shape, well, there's going to be judgment. There's going to be a doubling of the rigorous training schedule because he would be displeased with them. Keep it in perspective. God is visiting his people. And how will he find them? Will it be a good visit or will it be a bad visit? Jesus talked about this quite a bit in the parables that he gave. Regularly, he would talk about a master leaving, going on a trip and leaving his, his affairs in the hands of stewards and servants. And when he came back, some of them were blessed. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter into the blessing of your Lord. Others, because they had been slovenly and drunkards and they haven't cared for the master's resources and they weren't ready for his return, were thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Visitation is a double-edged sword. On the triumphal entry, Jesus is visiting his people. Halfway down the mountain in Luke, he almost falls off of his donkey because he begins to sob. The word is wail as he looks upon Jerusalem and he cries out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he goes into a prophecy, but he ends it by saying, You missed your time of visitation. I visited you. I came to inspect you, to oversee you. And you weren't ready and you rejected me. You rejected the peace treaty. So there will be war and not peace. Second word that is here is just as powerful, actually. It's the word redeemed. He has redeemed his people. Now, quite often people get confused about what redeem means. It's a little different. It's used as a synonym quite often with salvation, redemption, salvation. And quite frankly, I use it that way a lot myself. But there's a nuance of difference. When we talk about salvation, we're really talking about the total package of being saved. Your justification, that when you are justified and, and, and declared not guilty by the blood of Christ, is part of your salvation. It's not the total package. There's also the sanctification that leads to your glorification. And all of that is included in the idea of salvation. Redemption speaks more about the process, how one gets to that or works their way through that, that process of redemption. That's why we talk about the history of redemption. It was the way that God brought people into relationship with him. But the idea of redemption usually carries with it the idea of ownership. When you're redeemed by someone, there's ownership involved. If you take something that you own to a pawn shop and you pawn it, well, you give up ownership of whatever that is. Now, if you go back to get it, you redeem it. And and when you redeem it, that means you're buying it back. But the ownership transfers from the pawn shop to you. A person redeems something and that something belongs to them. Well, Jesus, God, has come to redeem his people. That's why he's going into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey to bring peace between God and man, to redeem them, to buy them back from the evil that holds them. I want you to imagine, if you will, and I know I'm going to be very stylistic about this, but go ahead and start using your imagination because I'm going to want you to later. I want you to imagine Jerusalem in the old city with the wall around it. 
totally consumed with a giant serpent that is coiled around every single house. Millions of people for Passover are in that city covered with darkness, and yet that serpent has every single one of them coiled in his grasp. That's why Jesus is coming, not just as the Prince of Peace, but as a king in power, aggressively releasing and redeeming his people. Get them out of the grasp of that great servant. You know who that is. That's Satan. Well, anyway, that's the, that's the idea. And, and that's how I hope you can see how you can put this into the context of the triumphal entry. Which takes us to this second and last verse for this morning. Which is where the power comes in. Which is where the aggressiveness comes in. It is where we see the triumphal entry and even what Zechariah is saying in a completely different perspective. Not the man on a donkey, even though that's true. You don't want to lose that. He's come to bring peace. But he's also the king of kings and lord of lords, and he is entering into his kingdom. Here's the way Zechariah says it. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This... Power, this aggressiveness. Zephaniah talked about it in his um, prophecy. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Isaiah put it this way. It is I, God, speaking, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. The one who enters in on that donkey is mighty, powerful, aggressive, mighty to save his people. Nothing can take them out of his grasp. Now, what I want to do is I want to go to the back end of that verse first, kind of help it put into its perspective. Notice what he says in the house of his servant David. Once again, that is covenantal language. That is the discussion of covenant, but a particular covenant. You, you, you see, the redemption and the visitation that is occurring is really the, the answer, the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham, Mary talked about it at the end of her song just a few verses ago. Abraham is the one that God said, I'm going to give you spiritual children like the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. And all the world will be blessed through your progeny, through your descendants. Well, Jesus is that descendant, the one entering town on, good, uh, on the Palm Sunday. And so therefore, this is a statement of the power of, of the covenant that God has made with his people. But notice, he says here, your servant David. And so he's speaking about a particular aspect of that covenant. We're not going to get into covenants, but the covenants, they kind of expand and they flow into each other, each one expanding on the one that was before it. And so therefore, the covenant that David, that God made with David is the covenant of the king. It's the covenant of the kingdom where God promises David a kingdom that will last forever. Probably in the after church, we're going to look at this a little bit closer. But from 2 Samuel, the way this kind of goes down is David wants to build God a house. And God says, I've never had a house. I don't need a house. And in fact, he turns around and he says, David, I'm going to build you a house. But that's sort of a play on words, you see. He's not talking about a physical house. He's talking about a dynasty, a legacy. This is the way he puts it. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And so we see the king riding on a donkey coming into town to claim his kingdom. Now, is this where the kingdom of heaven begins? I don't know. You know, we've talked about it several times during this first chapter of Luke. Does it begin when John the Baptist is born? Does it begin when Jesus is born? Does it begin at the Jordan River when he's uh, baptized on the Mount of Transfiguration? As he enters the kingdom now, as he's on the cross, resurrection, which one of those is the beginning of the kingdom of heaven? Well, I think they all are. But nonetheless, this is a discussion of Jesus. If we keep it in the context of the triumphal entry, this is a king. But not just any king, folks. That's what the first of that verse means. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. He has raised up. He has brought for us a horn of salvation. Now, that is a... 
a phrase that means power and strength. Um, let, let's go back to the to the the the, the original of this, where where um, Zechariah is actually quoting from David from the Psalms. Um, there's, this is a rare word that he uses. This is the only place in the New Testament is used. It's only used twice in the Old Testament, but they're both the same psalms. That, that happens sometimes. You have the same psalm in two different places. And, and, and I read it to you in the moment of the word. Let me just read the second verse for you. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Isn't that comforting, that one verse? How much is in that one verse? But I want you to notice that most of what David says, most of the metaphors that he uses there are stationary, uh, passive in a sense. In other words, he says he's my rock. Well, that speaks of strength and solidness, a place for people to hide. He's a fortress, a place where there are walls and there's protection within that fortress. A refuge, a place to disappear in and hide from your enemies. A shield, something to hold in front of you to ward off the blows of the enemies. A stronghold, once again, a place to hide. But in all of what he says in that verse, there's only one statement that he makes that is powerfully aggressive. That's the horn of my salvation. And we were blessed last week, weren't we? When Brother Byron brought his students and the um, band leader from CCA. And you played your horns, didn't you? You had three trombones and a trumpet. That's not the kind of horn we're talking about. Although they were sometimes turned into a horn that you could blow. We're talking about the horn of an ox. We're talking about the horn of a bull, actually. And, and, and sometimes they would take those horns and they would use them. They put the oil of anointment in them to anoint the kings because they represented raw power. Now, bulls are unpredictable animals, and, and they've got sort of an attitude, you know. Uh, um, we see them all the time in Haiti when we're in the back roads. We don't see many in Fort Lauderdale, but there you see them all the time, and you never know what they're going to do. Uh, they, sometimes they'll just walk right past you on those dirt roads as if you're not there. Other times they'll almost kill themselves trying to climb out of the road because they're afraid, and other times they will turn on that vehicle and charge. And it can be scary because they consider us to be an enemy. So, horn, so, so bulls are huge, they're strong, they're muscular, they're powerful. But the bulls we're talking about here are not like the bulls in Haiti. The bulls we're talking about here are not even like the bulls that we have out west, those big Texas longhorns with those big huge horns. No, totally different kind of bull, a bull that is now extinct. It's called the auroch in those days. And they used to be all around the Mediterranean basin, okay? Huge. Seven feet at the shoulder, standing on all fours. Nine feet at the head. And, and, and actually, they've even got renditions of them in the cave paintings in southern France. So they were quite prevalent at that time. They're long extinct now. But listen, if you will, to, to the... Uh, oh, yeah, by the way, let, let, let me do this first. Um, they are mentioned several times in Scripture. And, and, and they're mentioned in the context of warfare and power and victory over enemies. Reading from the 92nd Psalm. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered, but you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. That's the auroch that that is talking about. Listen to what Julius Caesar wrote about these animals in the Gallic Wars. He said, these are a little below the elephant in size. I want to repeat that. I want you to form a vision. We're going to use our imaginations about a bull of awesome power because that's what Zechariah is talking about. But Caesar says these are a little below the elephant in size and of the appearance, color, and shape of a bull. Their strength and speed are extraordinary. They spare neither man nor wild beast, which they have espied, but not even when, one, when they are taken very young 
Can they be rendered familiar to men and tame? They cannot be domesticated. The size, shape, and appearance of their horns differ much from the horns of our oxen. You know why? Because they were weapons. They didn't stick out. They curved and came forward in long points that they would use to impale anything that they espied. They were ornery, tough, powerfully aggressive animals. Zechariah says, you have raised up the auroch. You have raised up the horn of my salvation. You have raised up a king who is not meek and mild, who is not a wimp, who is not anemic. You have raised up a king of awesome power, mighty to save, able to destroy sin and Satan that holds its grip on you. That's the imagery that we have of the triumphal entry. Now you can see why I say it's a complex picture, isn't it? Because on the one hand, we do. We have a man on a donkey riding into town. People are all excited about him now, but before the week is out, they're going to arrest him. They're going to beat him. They're going to mock him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to lash him to within an inch of his life. They're going to march him through town, and they're going to nail him to a cross and torturously kill him. That's the man who rides in on a donkey. (laughs) But that is the victory. That is the victory. That's the price. That's the redemption price for you and for me and for all who will put their trust in him. His death, his sacrifice, his atonement. And God raised him from the dead on Easter Sunday just to show that he could. Just to show you that he was who he said he was and he did what he said he could do. But that's the triumph of the man on the donkey. But brothers and sisters, I've got to remind you of this. The word visitation is a double-edged sword. It means that I come into this city with a, with a document, with a treaty of peace. And if you accept my treaty of peace, if you accept the terms of this treaty, then there will be peace, shalom, peace with God. The only way that you'll ever have peace with God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you reject it, if you reject it, if you throw it back in his face and you say, no, I will do it my own way. I will figure my own way to heaven and I don't need your sacrifice. There will be war. Because visitation is a double-edged sword. Over the years that we have talked about triumphal entry, I've given you Oh, a whole host of metaphors to think about. This one about the the Prince of Peace riding in on a donkey. Uh, About the the fact that thousands of lambs would be driven in at this particular time for Passover. And Jesus right in the middle of them, the Lamb of God. And the answer to Isaac's question to Abraham, where is the Lamb? Of David as he brought the Ark of the Covenant, the Emmanuel Principle, into Jerusalem. Once again, God is in the middle of his people. I mean, there's so many different ways you can look at it. But this morning, I want to look at it from a different perspective. A different perspective that is not what Luke meant. I do not say this as the interpretation. It is an application. This is an application of what Zechariah is saying. Applied to the... Triumphal entry. The way that Jesus entered the city was that he came up the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. They were staying in Bethany. They went through Bethphage, which is where they picked up the donkey. And over the crest of the hill, the way I see it, or early in the morning, as the sun's beams were flying behind him, you see silhouetted against that backdrop a man on a donkey. And he would come down that steep slope of the Mount of Olives through the Valley of Kidron. So, so what an amazing image it is today. Because it's a huge cemetery. It's one of the biggest cemeteries you're ever going to find. And certainly the most expensive. 
but is covered with dead man's bones through the valley of death up into the temple. Of course, it wasn't a cemetery then, but it is now. Up through the Kidron Valley, up and entering into the city through the eastern gates, known as the Golden Gates. Oh, I don't know, about the 15th century, the Muslims um, boarded it up. It's been boarded up ever since. And they're the ones who started the cemetery. They, they made a, a Muslim cemetery right in front of the gates so the Messiah couldn't get in. Really? <laughs> Are you kidding me? But anyway, it was open in those days, and that's the way that Jesus came in. So I want you to imagine yourself in that city, right at the edge of that gate. And like everyone else in that city, you are suffocated by the coils of a massive serpent that holds you in his grasp. We are told that everyone is a slave to sin and everyone needs to be redeemed. And that serpent is the serpent of old, the devil himself, who keeps people in sin. And you are in the most hopeless condition, wrapped up in the coils of a giant python that simply goes throughout the entire city. And one by one, he engulfs and eats the people in his grasp. And you only have a couple more. But on this particular day, the dawn comes up over the eastern um, Mount of uh, Mount of Olives, and the whisper begins to go through those who are in the grasp of this serpent. Look to the east. Look. Look at the crest of the mount. And what do you see? Not a man on a donkey, but a powerful, huge, seven foot at the shoulder, massive, quivering, powerful beast. And he's angry because he looks down upon that city and he sees his people in the clutches of that serpent. So he paws at the ground, his muscles ripple. You can see the smoke coming out of his nostrils. This is what David said, not about this particular animal, but this came from the same psalm. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. And he came swiftly on the wings of the wind. Like a shot out of a cannon. The mighty bull comes flying down the mountains of olives through the valley of Kidron, up the steep incline, and right through those eastern gates. And he brings with him a cloud of dust. For a moment, your vision is obscured. But you know that around you, an epic mortal battle is going on. And then all of a sudden, something amazing happens. The grip that that great serpent has on you is loosed. And then it's gone altogether. And for the first time in your life, you are free. In the true meaning of the word, you are free. The serpent has no hold on you. And when the dust settles around you, scattered, the gnarled and bloody carcass of that great serpent, and in front of you is that mighty ox, the wild ox, the auroch, with parts of the body still hanging from his horns, but his paw, his hoof, is crushing the head of that serpent. And the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 comes true, where the seed of the woman crushes the head of the serpent. That's what I see in the triumphal entry, brothers and sisters. That's the one who is mighty to save. That's the one who has come to end the domination of Satan in darkness and sin forever. To all who will accept his treaty. But those who will not. There's nothing but judgment that remains. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, especially if you're an unbeliever. I know that I have just given you a very stylized version of the, of the triumphal entry. And as I said, don't, don't quote me and say this is what, Pastor, what Dr. Luke said. It's not. 
But it is certainly applicable because he's talking about Jesus when he talks about the horn of his salvation and God has raised him up. Now there's a question before you. Each and every one of us must answer this question. What will it be? Because the Lord has visited you this morning through the words of his gospel, through the words of his word. He has visited you and he has brought redemption for you and he has offered to you for free. He went to the cross and he paid the penalty for you and that redemption is yours if you will accept it. There is glory and there is sanctification and glorification and eternity with God if you will accept the terms of his peace treaty. But if you deny them, I don't mean this casually. I mean it in its realest sense. If you deny it, there will be hell to pay. Because it's a double-edged sword. Jesus said this. This is nothing new. This is not something I made up. Jesus said it when he said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And the particular sword that we just saw was a horn, a horn of an auroch, the horn of salvation. So I leave you with this question. What will it be? Will there be punishment or will there be blessing? Will there be judgment or will there be glorification? Will there be condemnation or will they be salvation will there be war or peace let's pray this is no game Lord and we know it and I pray that no one who is here or no one who's listening thinks it's a game thinks it's an option thinks that it is something you can consider on an intellectual basis. I know I gave a stylized, symbolic version of this. But the truth underneath it is the truth of all creation, of all humanity. There is nothing more important than the peace treaty that you bring, the visitation that you bring, the redemption that you bring. Lord, may, may all of us see that. Even those who have already accepted you as Lord and Savior and may not be following you as closely as we should. May we recognize that this is your world and that redemption means ownership. We've been bought with a price. We are not our own. May you be glorified, praised, and exalted for all that you have done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.